2: you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra
1: mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
3: From The Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, Afghan girls who escaped from the Taliban. The story of a boarding school that evacuated its students from Kabul during the chaotic withdrawal of the Americans and moved to Kigali, Rwanda. It's called Sola, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. It's a place where Afghan girls study to become members of the generation that they hope will one day lead a peaceful and united Afghanistan. We'll speak with the founder, Shabana Basij Rasik, later in the show. But first, Donald Trump and his 34 felonies. Can he really be brought to justice? Ellie Mistal, Joan Walsh, and Chris Lehman will comment in a minute. Can Donald Trump be brought to justice? The nation asked Ellie Mistal, Chris Lehman, and Joan Walsh what they thought in a roundtable discussion this week. Ellie Mistal is the nation's justice correspondent. His book is Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, which is a New York Times bestseller. Of course, he's a frequent guest on MSNBC. He opened the conversation by discussing the indictment and in Trump's possible defenses.
2: All right, so let's start with the actual documents. It is 34 counts of falsifying business records um, charged as a Class E felony. What does that mean? Think of it like the speeding ticket of financial crimes, right? It's the thing that they get you for when they don't have anything else to get you for. Alvin Bragg himself said that falsifying business records is the bread and butter of the Manhattan DA's office. That's true, but you can take that one of two ways. One, it's the bread and butter. They do it. It's standard. It's what they do all the time. Two, it's what they do all the time. It's not the kind of high crimes... Um, uh, and moral depravity that most people are looking at Trump for now that their false that the charges are falsifying business records as opposed to something more serious has gotten some people in the media confused because of the way Bragg went about getting them from a misdemeanor falsifying business records to a felony falsifying business records right to to make it into a felony Bragg has to allege that Trump falsified his business records, you know, uh, messed up his books because of some higher underlying crime. And the higher underlying crime is how we get into all of the talk about conspiracy, the National Enquirer, Karen McDougal, the entire kind of catch and skill scheme, as well as the likely campaign finance uh, uh, laws violations uh, that Trump was probably trying to cover up, saying basically that the hush money to Stormy Daniels, was, in fact, a campaign contribution that Trump did not log correctly and tax evasion. So, like, those are all things that Bragg is alleging to make falsifying business records a felony. He's not actually charging Trump with campaign finance violations, tax fraud, conspiracy,
3: and what have you. So where does that leave Trump and his defense attorneys when this comes to trial?
2: Trump is going to have some legitimate legal defenses. Now, when I say legitimate, understand most of the times when I am talking about Trump's legal arguments, Trump usually does not have a legitimate legal argument. He has only the authoritarians legal argument that my judges that I handpicked are going to bail me out this time. He's going to have some legitimate defenses one he's going to argue that there was no deeper fraud that he intended to cover up and the way he can kind of prove that there was no deeper fraud that he intended to cover up is that nobody has charged him with any of these deeper frauds that he allegedly covered up right like how can you say that i'm trying to cover up campaign finance fraud when nobody has charged me with campaign finance fraud and it ain't like the federal government hasn't looked right he can argue that SDNY looked at the case, the DOJ looked at the case, and they didn't charge him with campaign finance violations. So, so what was he trying to avoid, right? Like that's I'm not saying that's a good argument, but I'm saying it's a legitimate one that he will be able to make. The other one that he'll be able to make is that all of these charges, again, 40, 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Don't let the 34 kind of fool you. It's one scheme that he committed 34 times, right? It's like 11 invoices and 10 bad checks. And, you know, it's the same kind of offense over and over again. He's going to argue that those offenses fall outside of the statute of limitations. There's a three-year statute of limitations on tax fraud. There's a five-year statute of limitations on campaign finance fraud. And most of the allegations that Bragg has are in uh, 2017 or very early 2018, Which doesn't quite get you all the way to 2023, unless, and the little like extra juice here is that people remember the period between 2018 and 2023, we also had, you know, like a global pandemic that kind of screwed everything up. Um, And so during that pandemic, uh, uh, Governor, former Governor, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo suspended the statute of limitations for 228 days. Depending on how you legally read that, and there are different ways to legally read that, you could argue that that extends the statute of limitations by 228 days. And really, there are a couple of offenses, right, in in late 2017, early 2018, where that extra 228 days might put Bragg under the statute of limitations. So that's, that's a thing that will probably come up. Greg will also argue that the Statute of Limitations tolls or, or pauses while Trump is out of state and unavailable. It, it's an interesting argument. It's the point of that is to say that basically, like if you commit a crime in New York and we don't know where you are, the statute pauses. We knew where Trump was like the whole time and to argue that he was unavailable. That works for the feds because based on the OLC memo, you know, Mary, Robert Mueller couldn't charge a sitting. Never That never applied at the local level. Bragg or his predecessor, Cy Vance, could have charged Trump with these crimes at any point. Um, so whether or not we can we can call Trump unavailable while he was president is also a matter of some legal um, import. So to wrap that all up, Bragg has a very simple charge that is very Easy to prove. You'll know. You'll note. At no point did I even suggest that Trump did not falsify his business records in connection with the such money payments to the actor. Like we all know that that actually happened. So Bragg has a very simple charge. It's a relatively easy charge to prove. We assume that he has all the documents from Michael Cohen to prove it. But there are legitimate legal technicalities that could provide Trump with some with some options here.
3: But why wasn't Trump indicted on the underlying felonies? Why didn't Merrick Garland charge him as soon as Biden took office in 2021?
2: Merrick Garland does not take my calls. If, if,
3: if he did take my calls,
2: I would ask him that question because I want to know. The argument that the feds haven't charged Trump with this yet starts with Bill Barr. We know that Bill Barr refused to let the DOJ, including his minions at the Southern District of New York, that's the federal uh, um, place in, with jurisdiction over Manhattan. We know that Bill Barr quashed the, 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 the investigation okay. That's on Barr's, you know, eternal soul. What's the argument for... Merrick Garland not having these charges ready to go January 2021 or at least March 2021 once he was uh, once he was appointed where's the argument for Damian Williams the current USAO of SDNY um, to not have these charges ready to go by May like why didn't why weren't they ready with all of this in 2021 once they took power because again we knew the scheme from from 2017 and 2018 Michael Cohen let's not forget, went to jail behind all of this. And he wasn't prosecuted by the Manhattan DA's office. Michael Cohen was prosecuted by the Southern District of New York, by federal attorneys under a federal uh, legal violation. So if it was good enough for Michael Cohen under Bill Barr, why wasn't it good enough for Donald Trump under Merrick Garland? And fundamentally only Merrick Garland can answer that question. And I suppose he will in six years when he writes
3: a book. We're waiting for Georgia to charge Trump with election fraud because of that phone call. Chris Lehman is the nation's D.C. editor and former editor of the Baffler and the New Republic. He commented on the other charges that we expect to be brought.
4: You know, the case in Georgia, they literally have Donald Trump on tape (laughs) conspiring to commit election fraud. Um, And that indictment has yet to drop. And I am as mystified as Ellie is as to why Merrick Garland also didn't add that to his portfolio in March. It's a clear, could not be more cut and dried. And um, then we have the two Jack Smith prosecutions, one of the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which has been going very badly for for Trump in court thus far. And uh, the January 6th um, prosecution, which I think is sort of the most serious, momentous, you know. Should have been prosecuted long ago. But um, but yeah, it's important to keep in mind, there is a whole thicket of, of legal cases against Trump sort of converging at this moment. Um, and I do actually think one of the chief re- reasons he is running for re-election, apart from his unappeasable, megalomaniacal ego, is he wants to get elected president so that he will not be held directly accountable in court.
3: Joan Walsh is the nation's national affairs correspondent. She's also author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? and a former commentator on CNN and NBC.
5: I think we all agree that the Georgia case and the potential, you know, Jack Smith, please God, cases are more significant than this case in New York. But, but here's what I want to say about why it is actually significant, regardless of what happens on the merits. I think, first of all, it was a big deal. There were, You know, all the talking heads were like, oh, you know, it's we've never indicted a former president. It's really kind of bad. I don't know. Well, we did it. It's been done, and I think it'll be, make it easier to do it again, and it will shut some of them up. The other thing that I think is interesting that is related in a way is that public opinion has shifted. ABC did a, did a poll about, I think, 10 days apart before the indictments and after the indictments. And they found that before the indictments, 40 percent of independents said it was a good idea, meaning most of them were like, no, no, don't do this. After the indictments, 54% said it was a good idea. And I think that shows you the power of action. I mean, we sit around and talk about how, ooh, opinion polls, they're bad for Democrats on this and that, and therefore we shouldn't do this or that. But in fact, sometimes you see that actually doing this or that changes the polls. So often Democrats are cowards in the face of public opinion. And then finally, as a woman, I will say a lot of women are really happy that, you know, the the trivializing of this as, oh, he just paid a porn star and the mocking of of Stormy Daniels and his mocking of Stormy Daniels, you know, she's ugly, horse face. I would never be with someone like her. You know, it echoes things he said about so many of the women he's assaulted. I would never be with E. Jean Carroll, who he allegedly raped and then he can't, He can't distinguish between her and his ex-wife, Marla Maples, in photos. I mean, he's a liar. He's probably a rapist. And I think a lot of women found it very satisfying that the first thing he was indicted for was not specifically paying off a porn star, but that or a sex worker or a brilliant woman who's turned this into, you know, an amazing business. It's, It's there. It's always there. She's there. And I was very happy to see that.
4: The other independent uh, poll return that I saw that was really striking was that after the arraignment, 62 percent of independent voters said that they felt it was improper for Trump to be continuing to run for president while indicted. So I don't you know, yeah, this all plays to the MAGA base in a way that we all know in nauseating detail. Right. But the presidential election ultimately isn't going to be about that and you know biden and the democrats are well aware of that
3: let's assume there's a trial let's assume trump is convicted what are the chances he'll actually go to jail
2: all of it is fines the alvin bragg charges fines the fanny the letitia james charges fines like actually the espionage charge depending on how he does it fines like actually getting trump in the pokey the only way you're doing that. Is Fannie Wallace in Georgia with election fraud? Or if Jack Smith really comes after something, um, coup conspiracy January 6th, right? Everything else, 34 class E felonies, fine, 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 fine. Like you don't go to jail. And this is going to rankle some people the wrong, the wrong way. Trust me, it bothers me too. But Trump is, would be a first time nonviolent elderly offender. We generally do not send 76-year-old people to jail for financial crimes when
3: it's, their first, when it's the first offense. We just don't. Do the indictments hurt Trump with any Republicans? And is there any chance the indictments might change the Republican Party and move it away from Trump?
5: No. I mean, they've all come out. They all have the same talking points. You know, Soros-backed radical, you know, animal DA in a crime-ridden city who's letting other criminals who's letting real criminals walk free. They're all even the people who are running against him. That's what they're saying. So no, that they, they this has not dented him with Republican leaders and not much with Republican voters from the polls I've seen. Maybe a couple points, which really don't matter. Um, so no.
4: Yeah, the, the um, I totally agree with Joan. The only thing I would add is an important asterisk is I do think it will hurt the GOP. I don't care what they say, and all the talking points are clearly intended to distract attention and say, hey, look over there. But it is just a bad look to have a, a standard bearer for your political party who has been arraigned for a crime. It is also important to remember that GOP, the GOP lags in national voter registration so therefore the independent vote is critical to winning a national election and as we were saying earlier independents aren't liking the way this this looks
2: it is insane that the GOP is attacking the indictment in this way and Trump is attacking the indictment in this way when as i said he's got legitimate legal defenses right like right. in on earth 2 where republicans are still normal the talking point from the gop is bring it on bring it on i did nothing wrong and now we're going to have a whole process and you can take all the shots you want and the process will vindicate me um that i did nothing wrong like that would actually be the winning argument if you were a normal conservative republican person who believed in like the law and democracy and the rule of law being applied fairly and equally to everybody you would welcome it oh look i am running to be president but i am not above the law i will subject myself to any legal strategy that you have against me because i know that i no. that's that's a campaign ad right but no it's got to be like eh, brag is being controlled by sir it doesn't really mean to me like that's because of the warping, the weirding that Trump has done to our entire politics. People don't even see that he's that he would a normal politician would be handling this entirely differently than Trump and the entire sy- sycophantic Republican structure. Finally,
3: what is to be done?
2: The way to hold pres- former presidents, public officials accountable is to make them former public officials that's what's supposed to happen we're supposed to oh look that person did something wrong we won't vote for him and the thing that has tripped that up has been the republican party's descent into authoritarianism right because this this is a this is a republican party problem because it is the republicans who were supposed to kind of police their own and kick these bad people out of their party and therefore out of public life and we won't and they won't do that the real fix is stopping gerrymandering and abolishing the Electoral College. The real fix is taking away the things that Republicans use to exert minority control over the majority of the population, taking those things away and having people vote other vote the bad guys out. It is the classic Churchillian, the solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy. That's how you actually fix it.
3: Elimistal, Joan Walsh, and Chris Lehman. Read them at thenation.com. And you can watch the full conversation at the nation's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the nation.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
3: Now it's time to talk about Afghan girls. It's been a little more than a year since the Taliban decreed that Afghan girls don't need to be educated past sixth grade. But there's one boarding school for Afghan girls that escaped from Kabul as the Americans withdrew and the Taliban took over. Its students now study together in exile in Africa. That's the work of an amazing person. Shabana Basij Rasik. She's the founder of SOLA, S-O-L-A, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. It was featured recently on 60 Minutes in, in The New Yorker. Her TED Talk in 2021 has had more than 2 million viewers. and She's a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. This week, she's visiting California, where she joins us now. Shabana, welcome
7: back. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you, John. Before we get to the story
3: of how you got your students and staff out of Kabul in those chaotic days when the Taliban had the airport surrounded, let's talk about the recent history of education for girls in Afghanistan. Maybe let's start with your own education.
7: I was born and raised in Kabul, Afghanistan. And during my childhood, the first Taliban regime came to power in 1996 regime collapsed uh, shortly after 9-11. During that time period, um, they made education for girls illegal. And so I grew up during that time and was incredibly fortunate because my parents decided that it was uh, riskier to raise their children, especially their daughters, without an education. So they took that risk, um, that enormous risk to themselves and all of us. Um, to make sure that my sisters and I received an education under the the Taliban regime, which meant um, that my sisters and I um, attended secret schools. These are underground schools that um, were operated by some of the most remarkably brave Afghan women who also um, decided that uh, it was riskier for uh, the Afghan society um, to have a generation of Afghan girls Uh, without access to education than to risk their lives and the lives of their families to open up their living rooms to educating Afghan girls. And and that's how I received my first uh, six years of uh, education, attending a number of different uh, secret underground schools during the Taliban regime.
3: So I understand that when the Taliban were overthrown in 2001, there were no girls officially in elementary school in Afghanistan. 20 years later, uh, how many Afghan girls were going to school?
7: We had more than uh, 3 million girls um, in, uh, in schools um, after the fall of um, Taliban. So you founded Sola
3: in 2008. Eventually it became a boarding school, the only boarding school in Afghanistan for girls. What was Sola like, say, a year before the Taliban arrived?
7: Uh, honestly, I w- want to take you to the beginning of 2021, the year the Taliban arrived in Afghanistan. January of 2021, uh, we had received a record number of uh, application uh, from Afghan students across the country. Uh, close to 300 application from 31 of the 34 provinces for um, a um, sixth grade cohort of initially 16 students that we would admit, but later decided to admit 25. In addition to um, the normal application that we received, what we found was that uh, more than uh, 30 of the applicants to SOLA that year were Afghan girls who had never, ever been to school. Someone- From their family or relatives or uh, supporters or some guardian had filled out an application on on their behalf saying here here's someone who's 12 or 13 or 14 or 10 years old who has never had an opportunity to go to school because the district where she lived for instance had been constantly contested between the afghan government and the taliban forces And so uh, as a result, girls' um, schooling uh, remained um, closed. And so we looked at 30 of those applications and decided we uh, wanted to admit a small cohort of uh, about five girls um, who had never been to school and that we would work with them in an expeditious way to uh, bring them up to speed in a matter of a couple of years before they can start with our sixth grade. So that was the beginning of... 2021, we admitted a cohort, Uh, our new academic year started in March, uh, late March of uh, 2021. Um, Despite COVID and that being prevalent, um, vaccinations being limited in Afghanistan, we managed to welcome our students safely, um, quarantine them, create a COVID bubbles, uh, you know, safe space Mm -hmm. on campus, and they were able to continue with their education uh, and then and then august came around and obviously
3: so august august 2021 everybody had known the americans were leaving but nobody realized how fast the taliban would arrive and how chaotic life in kabul would become in that last week kabul fell on august 15th and these were the days when getting a even a single person through the panicked crowds outside the airports and through the taliban checkpoints seemed nearly impossible But you got 100 girls and 150 teachers, staff, and family members out. How did you do it?
7: It didn't start in August. Our preparation started right after the announcement made by the um, US government in April of 2021 of unconditional withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan. I knew, John, that it was a matter of time before it would be irresponsible of us to um, operate a boarding school for Afghan girls inside the country. Even with that, the possibility of Taliban takeover and that that quickly was not something that had entered my imagination, quite frankly. Um, A lot of people that I spoke with, whether that was in Washington, D.C. or Kabul City, there were other scenarios that kept coming up. Those scenarios still concerned me because our students really um, did come to us from 28 of the 34 provinces. So I worried about their safety, about road safety as they would go home from the school for vacation and so on. And so um, the the idea that made most sense uh, was let's engage all of our students and our community in a study abroad program, whether that lasts six months or a year it will give our community an opportunity to be in a safe place, to provide our students continuity of learning, and to make sure that they, they don't have disruption to their learning as we figure out what happens politically in, in, inside the country. And so with that, uh, we uh, engaged in a number of conversations about where we would take our study abroad program. A neighboring country made most sense because of familiarity, proximity, et cetera. But uh, the reality was that so many of our neighboring countries were already overwhelmed by the number of Afghans who were quickly becoming refugees in those countries. We weren't making much of a, a traction in, in those conversations. And so out of the blue, the um, option that came became our reality was um, taking our entire school community to Rwanda, an East African nation, That is, uh, in so many ways, a remarkable home for solar community now. uh, And tell
3: us, please, the story of how you got everybody into the airport through the chaotic crowds and checkpoints.
7: We initially were supposed to be departing Afghanistan on our own um, chartered flights uh, out of Kabul City um, on August, uh, just a few days after uh, the 15th. As we were finalizing those plans, of of course, Kabul fell to the control of Taliban on the 15th and turned our um, carefully planned study abroad program into a traumatic uh, evacuation out of uh, Afghanistan. But uh, we um, really uh, couldn't present as as a school community getting out. And so our students and our faculty and staff member and their family members really um, showed up uh, at the airport as family units. And this is
3: because the Taliban would not have allowed a large group of girls to leave altogether.
7: Yes, but at the same time, you know, we we weren't just trying our luck. We had, um, I had been in conversation with the U.S. government and also the government of uh, Qatar for quite some time, and um, they were instrumental in in our success you know that they had they were the ones ultimately giving lists of names of people who would get out of the country and our community members our students and family members and so on they were put on that list and fortunately initially the the idea was that we would all leave in the same day but because of the chaos of the crowd as you are very well familiar with it ended up taking um, three days uh, for our entire community to get out and I look at all of this it was a it was an incredibly difficult uh, experience for everyone Uh, but simultaneously and immediately I think about how lucky and fortunate um, our community members were are Um, that they managed to get out of Mm -hmm. Afghanistan and that our students are able to uh, focus on their studies or their, um, you know, for every day that is counted as the number of days the Taliban have banned Afghan girls from education. Those are the exact number of days our students have been able to stay in school and uh, continue with their education. And um, they are fortunate. They are lucky. They know it. Um, They feel guilty about it. They have the survivor's guilt. Um, And I know that it's a combination of all of this and the reality that will keep their focus on Afghanistan. And my hope is that as they uh, continue on with their education and when they become young professional uh, women, Afghan women in exile, that as soon as the opportunity is presented to them, to be able to go back to Afghanistan and be part of the rebuilding of our nation, that, um, that they will do that.
3: And what's it like for your students now that they are living and studying at Sola in Kigali?
7: You know, uh, if I, if I uh, answer that from the perspective of our students, uh, they're, they're quite busy. Uh, They have a, (laughs) they have a, uh, they have quite a robust uh, schedule, uh, daily schedule, that uh, you know covers um, athletics and activities. And before they get uh, into classes, they have this remarkable assembly that happens every morning. And it's such a grounding experience because they start the day by how they used to start the day in Afghanistan, reciting the 99 names of God and Prophet Muhammad and singing the Afghan National Anthem. And it's entirely student-led, and they uh, they share their high points from the day before most recently i was sitting through and um, you know students would talk about my high point was finishing my uh, math project or my um, pashto project uh, one of the languages spoken in afghanistan or uh, one of them talked about uh, her high high point being um, reading the student handbook uh, with her roommate (laughs) which i thought was pretty interesting (laughs) and then they are they off they go to classes and they have afternoon activities and they get a bit of a chance uh, every day to be able to check in with their families uh, whether that's a video call or a regular phone call and you know then it's a boarding school so they have dinner and study hall and uh, light out and so that keeps the girls quite busy but uh, the, the part that really is fascinating is their engagement with other uh, schools in Rwanda. Um, they've had some remarkable opportunities to engage with other Rwandan students through various school activities, and that's always the highlight for the girls. That and exploring the country, Rwanda is a beautiful country, and for our students to have the opportunity um, to go on these trips, it's it's been truly remarkable. And what is the future of Sola? The future of Sola is one that will, in the long run, uh, put an end to Taliban and their ideology, uh, because Sola's mission was, is, and always will be to educate Afghan girls. And that commitment uh, for us, in the long run, is uh, one of the most effective ways to eradicate Taliban and that kind of ideology, not just from Afghanistan, but from the region. So, we are now in the process of establishing uh, permanence in Rwanda. We're focused on more than doubling our student population um, in the next couple of years in Rwanda. And we're looking at, uh, we have some really grand plans that I'm hoping to be able to announce more publicly and share more publicly soon. But, John, we are Every single day, we're working to uh, make sure that we create opportunities for Afghan girls, those who can come to us, to our boarding school in Rwanda. And for those who cannot come to us, how, how do we figure out the best way to get a quality education to them, whether they're inside Afghanistan or outside of the country, so that these young women, as they receive an education, They are truly the future of Afghanistan. They will be instrumental in uh, rebuilding uh, Afghanistan. And I am very sure that they will play a significant role in that.
3: And in the meantime, what's it like right now for girls in Afghanistan?
7: Having lived through the first Taliban regime, I still cannot pretend to fully understand what it must be like uh, for Afghan girls to be living under the current Taliban regime uh, for for Afghan women. But what I can tell you is that for a lot of them, Afghanistan has become a living hell. Women and girls are denied their dignity as human beings. They are denied their most basic human rights, their most basic Islamic rights um, to exist, to be, and Yet they are the most committed, the bravest group of people across all groups in Afghanistan, across all ethnic groups. These are some of the most remarkable, brave women who continue to fight, who continue to protest, knowing that the next day their dead bodies could appear uh, Mm -hmm. in a dumpster. And yet they continue to um, speak up, to raise their voices, and they fight, they have organized, they um, operate secret schools, Um, they have turned their homes into um, educational centers for girls in their communities. Women, educated women who have never been educators themselves, who are professional women, have now become educators, because for them, all they talk about is that right now, it's a matter of transferring what we know, our knowledge to other girls. And that's what matters. And that's what they engage in. And it's really important that people here, especially here in the United States, know that. Um, The reality is that people in Afghanistan are fighting hard um, against this uh, group, a small minority of group that is not representative of Afghans. And Afghanistan is a beautifully diverse country, and the Taliban uh, don't represent any, any of us. And, and so along with our community here in exile, I look inside Afghanistan for inspiration, but I also know that for people who are inside Afghanistan, for women who are fighting really hard, it matters for them when the world pays attention to what they're doing They wanna make sure that the world is not looking away. And I urge people not to look away.
3: Don't look away. Shabana basij Rasik is the founder of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. Shabana, thank you for your amazing work. And thanks for talking with us today.
7: Thank you for having me, John.